All right, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. One thing to say that's obvious at the outset, I think sometimes in ministry, one of the jobs is to say the thing that is obvious so that we don't forget it. So let me say something that's obvious as we're about to read the Bible together. One of my hopes, one of my prayers, one of the reasons we do this is so that you would know the scriptures better. So that you wouldn't just have to rely on these moments when someone with a microphone is sharing them, but that you have some places that you can pinpoint and say, I remember where I was and I know the contours of the argument of the Bible. So that as we study through Romans, you might think to yourself, yeah, I remember that. In chapter 3, it's where this amazing exchange takes place of Christ's righteousness for me and my sin on him. Or I can remember chapter 4. That's about Abraham and how faith works. My in-laws have a couple of maps in their house, a world map and then a U.S. map. And every time they go and spend some time somewhere, they put a pin in there. And they can walk by it through their living room. They look over and they remember and they say like, oh yeah, I remember when we were there. I know some of the restaurants. I know how the city's laid out. I could get on a bus if I needed to. I know something about the contours of that place because I've been there. And our hope is collectively together as we study the Bible that you have a map like that going in your heart and in your mind. So you open the pages of Scripture and you can go back and there's a pin right there in Romans 5. You can say, oh, I remember the contours of grace. I remember what that was like. Or you go to chapter 6 and you think to yourself, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Paul's argument about sin and how we're dead to sin because we died in Christ. And so that hopefully is an obvious thing. I hope you're operating on this, but I, would, I long for, I want you to know your Bibles better. I want you to see the argument of God, especially the good news of God, the gospel coming through these pages. So that being said, we are here at the end of Romans chapter 7, and Paul does something in his relationship, or in the Christian's relationship with sin, that I believe is very instructive and helpful. If everything's been logic up to this point, at the end of Romans 7, Paul's going to He's going to do a very 21st century thing. He's going to be authentic with us. He's going, to, he's going to let us in. It's like a little bit of a therapy session, and you're going to see what I mean here as we read. So first, verse 13 of Romans chapter 7, I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. 13th verse of chapter 7 says this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. One more obvious statement. We're not smart enough, spiritual enough, focused enough to get all that we need from these words, so we need God's Spirit. Let's pray together that he gives it. God, thank you for being near to us, with us. You've already given us such great mercy this morning, life and breath, this day that you've ordained. And we want to offer back to you hearts of wisdom. We want to use these moments well. So would you please help us? Would you give us insight where we would maybe find dullness otherwise? I pray that you'd help us to be honest with ourselves. We pray that the this word, these scriptures would be living, active, cut through the hardness of our hearts. God, I'm asking that you would be transforming and moving in us. We've planned prayers and songs and there's been people serving to make today happen. We're going to look at the Bible together, but anything lasting, anything real is going to have to be your work. So teach us and help us to cast ourselves upon you. We don't want to just go through the motions. We don't want to do what we're so prone to just to be surfacy. I pray we'd learn from Paul in this very passage. We get down to our, our very guts. So that's our, our prayer. We believe that you're for us more than we're for ourselves. So God, be active, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be two keys, two major keys that I want to think about in Romans 7 that are going to help us as we try to figure out, well, what is going on here? There's going to be two main keys. The first one's going to be kind of short, and the second one, I think, is the crux of the whole argument. Those two keys are, one, is to understand the word law. How is he using the word law? He throws it around a ton. And then second, what exactly is happening in Paul's life? And maybe I should say this, not what is happening, but when is this happening in Paul's life? So it's those two big questions. The law, what does he mean by the law? Second, when is this taking place? So the first one I said would be short. And there's something to understand as we go through Romans 7, especially here at the end. When the Bible uses the word law, it doesn't always use it in the same way. And I think that we should say that. Sometimes words have a variety of meanings or different nuance. So law, even within this one passage that we just read, law can mean the very formal command of God. Think Ten Commandments on the tablet, the thing that actually got hammered in, or the actual text of the particular commands of God. That's a thing. His standards are real. His statutes are the standard for all of life. So law sometimes means that, and he's going to say at different times, the law showed me, or I agreed with the law or the commandment. Second, he's going to use the word law, though, sometimes to describe a general principle. Or the way something works, like the law of gravity. You know, like if I, I'm not going to do it because it's a Bible. I, couldn't, I wouldn't do it with anything. It would be distracting. But if, if I drop, right, here's a law. There's a basic principle I've found in the world. When I drop things, they fall. Sometimes he describes, he says, I find a law at work within me or in my life. Basically, he means a principle. This is kind of how I work, he says. Then he describes even further the idea of law as some sort of force like the strong arm of the law, or I fought the law. You got it, right? Yeah, in the law one, right? 
that, this idea where he says there's this law that wages war against me. So sometimes he describes the idea of a law as something that becomes this powerful force, pressing, pulling, caging. And it's helpful to think about the fact that he's not using the word law in the same way in each place. Otherwise, it's not going to make much sense. If he says, there's a law inside of me, it doesn't mean that the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments somehow are found in his abdomen, right? I mean, that's a, a pretty clear idea. But that word, this idea of the way that the law, the standard of God overall, either as a general principle of life, the exact commandments, or a force that's pressing upon him, he uses it in all three of those ways. So that's the first interpretive key, I think, to this text. The second one is to ask and answer the question, when is this happening? Now, you're not going to believe this, but sometimes Christians disagree over that question. When is Paul talking about? Because here's the funny thing. The tone of Romans 7, as I said, it sounds almost very 21st century. I mean, in my opinion, you know, one of the things that we suffer from a malady of our day is that we're all living in a constant TMI situation. Just too much information, too much us out there all the time. The, the gift of the spirit of self-control would be a good one for many of us in many circumstances. And here, Paul just lets it all out. Up to this point, he was very theological, very logical. He's saying, okay, here's the thing. You died with Christ. Here's what a death means. You were, you were married to a particular law before. Then death came, so you're set free. But what happens here at the end of Romans 7 has befuddled Christians. In fact, for the first few hundred years, here's where some of the disagreement comes in, it seems like for the first few hundred years, the most dominant commenters, uh, commentators in the Bible were Greek thinkers. And a huge majority of them believe that there's no way Paul could be talking about his present self. In other words, they were so uncomfortable with his description of the battle of sin in his life, they just said, this must have been a pre-Christian Paul. He's playing a character. He's showing what it would be like if you weren't a Christian. Or he's describing maybe 20 years ago when he used to battle with sin. And some of the reasons they would give for that is they would say, he just told us in Romans 6 so definitively that you are no longer a slave to sin. You're free. You have a new life. It seems so confident. And then you get to end of 7 and he's kind of like, woe is me. This is, I'm just struggling here. And so for a long time, and it doesn't mean that argument ended, but for a long time, first 300 years, leading all the way up to now, some very trusted, thoughtful studiers of the Bible believe that this must be Paul giving an idea of what it's like before Christ. Then, four or five hundred years in, the tide begins to turn. And led by one of the most influential voices, Augustine, there begins to be a change and a shift, and Augustine wrote forcefully, saying that he had changed his mind and that he believed very definitively that this was a present tense Paul that we we're dealing with. That the reality of Paul's life, even as a Christian, meant that he would, had not toned down his battle with sin, but it had actually ramped up. And this idea, from Augustine forward, seems to become the slightly more dominant position to believe that what Paul is, you know, sort of emo Paul here at the end of Romans chapter 7, that emo Paul is definitive and the now Paul. And I, for one, firmly believe and, be and not only believe, but find great encouragement in the fact that this is Paul's life in the present, that he has 
has the gift of the Spirit of God that he is wrestling with this ongoing process in his life of becoming like Christ, but he laments the sin that he still sees. And I'm going to give you a few reasons for this. How, is, how do we know this is the present Paul? How do we know? Well, I'll start with the nerdiest, and then I'll give you some other reasons after that. The nerdiest has to do with verb tense. I came to church, sir. Not literature class or whatever, grammar. Do you remember grammar? I'm going to start. This is cookies on the bottom shelf. Do you remember past, future, and present tenses of verbs? Well, here's what happens in verse 14. In verse 14 of Romans chapter 7, there is a distinct change that remains through the rest of the chapter where here's a big hint. How do we know this is present Paul? Christian Paul still struggling with sin. Well, he uses present tense verbs all the way, starting in verse 14 consistently through the end. He doesn't say, sometimes I used to do what I didn't want to do. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, sometimes I hated what I used to do back then when I did what I hated. He shifts very personally, individually, and in present tense. I do what I don't want to do. I hate the things that I do. I find this law at work in me now. This thing dwells in me now. So that is a textual reason to believe the way that the verbs are written. It seems unthinkable to me that someone would say, he must be talking about way back in the day. Well, he needs to go back to grammar class. And all of us, second graders, could tell him, hey, that's not the verb tense you use. You ever edit a paper for someone, yourself or a kid? This is a problem. Sometimes verb tenses don't line up, and you want to say, what are you saying? Is this now? Was it then? Is it in the future? And I believe that what Paul's saying consistently is, this is now. I have the Spirit of God. I am in Christ. But let me tell you what sin feels like to me. Let me tell you what it's like to wrestle. And I'm going to give you a few other reasons why I believe this is the present Paul. First, I think that rather than it being evidence of him being looking at himself in the past, I think that his gut-level, very raw, honest idea of his unspiritual life is evidence that he is a Christian. You see, what kind of person is it that becomes alive to and awake to the idea that they have so much flesh left in them? He says in verse 14, the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh. In other words, he says, every time I look, I see how unspiritual I really am. He says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature. And what I would say is this is great evidence not of a person that is lost, but a person that has been found. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I came for the sick. A physician or a doctor comes just for sick people, and he basically says, until you realize and say, I'm a sick person, I got nothing for you. You see, a person, especially Paul, imagine Paul's actual past life, he seemed pretty confident in his righteousness. He says at one point, he's like, oh, do you want to you have a contest? You want to talk about who's the most right or who did the best? I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was zealous. Oh, how much did you love God? I killed people. That is confident pre-Christian Paul. This is a drastic change. This means the Spirit of God enlightening his eyes. It is only a person who has been humbled by the reality of their sin, moved by the Spirit of God in them that says, you know what, here's the real me. I have need. I sin. I am guilty inside of me. If God doesn't step in and help, I got nothing. I'm completely not a good person. 
See, that's something to rejoice in. If I hear people start talking like that, then I'm like, oh boy, we're close to the kingdom. Let's go. It's the opposite kind of people who say something like, I don't know, I'm fine. I mean, I'm just as good as anybody else, I guess. I don't know. I'm not that bad. Could be worse. Or like Paul, who what he actually said in his past life was, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had it all right. I was blameless, he says. So evidence number one, his sort of woe is me, full-on Eeyore attitude toward his life and his sin is evidence that the Spirit of God has been active in him, not evidence that he's talking about something previous. Point number two, how do we know this is present to Paul? Well, I would say that his attitude toward the law, not only as an external command, but as an inner reality, something that he longs for from his soul, is evidence that he is a Christian. He calls it holy, righteous, and good in verse 12. Then later he says it's spiritual in verse 25. In verse 19, he says, this is the good that I want to do. I agree with the law that it's good. And then finally, to me, here's the kicker. What kind of non-Christian, pre-Christian, other person says stuff like this in verse 22? He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In my inner being. He says that my insides have been rearranged And I delight, there's a part of me, the major part of me, actually longs for and wants to do what God says. Now that seems like the kind of rejoicing, lovely thing that happens to someone who has been made new in Christ. He says, I delight in this reality. I want more of what God has for me. That's not a pre-Christian kind of person that can say that. The kind of person who gets excited to learn about God. Do you remember what it was like when you became a Christian or you started to grow in your faith in a more distinct way and you thought to yourself, this is weird, I want to read the Bible. This is crazy, I'd like to pray more. You know what I want to do? I just want to hang out with my buddies and I want to talk about the atonement and controversies and I want to think about all these things. Well, Paul says, that's me down inside. I long for God's law. I delight in it. And I think that's reason number two, to think, well, what kind of person is like that? Certainly not a pre-Christian kind of person. It's a third reason. Here's another reason, and this might be counterintuitive. I think his struggle with sin in an ongoing way is evidence that he is a Christian. Because It is only, and I think this makes sense for us to think about it in this way, it is only someone who has become awake to sin and alive to the righteousness in Christ that actually battles against sin. I've met with people before. And they come and they sit down, and they're exhausted, and they're discouraged, and they are not sure that they're a Christian, and they want me to pray for them, and they're full of doubt. They think that they've been abandoned, And then they describe why they're so exhausted. And the reason they're so exhausted is because they have been fighting against sin in their life. And they so long for it to be different. And they're calling it and they're saying like, I hate this, this is not good, I want this gone. And in that moment, the thing that I can say to them most definitively is that they should rejoice that they're in the middle of the battle because it is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in them. The fact that they actually care because you just wouldn't care like you care if God's Spirit wasn't at work in you. Is it not a gift to say something like this? Oh man, 
I was, I was there and I did the thing that I, that I didn't want to do and I hate it and I wish it was different. And I so long to be changed from the inside out. That person who is dealing in that situation should be encouraged and told, let me tell you something, this is more evidence of the Spirit of God than I've seen in weeks. You're down there in the foxhole? You're fighting the war? What a thing to rejoice in. God's Spirit active in you. And you see, that's the thing about fighting with sin. As a Christian, sometimes you think to yourself, or maybe you thought this, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to become a new creature in Christ, and then everything will be easier. I'll just never struggle with sin again. But here's the problem. Have you ever started to really look at your life and think to yourself, man, I'm worse than I thought? You see, the relentless, illuminating power of the Spirit of God is not going to, he's not going to dare to leave you alone. He'll just keep coming. All bits of cancer got to be gone. All bits of disease, all illness removed. Transformation, conformity to Christ's image or bust. That's what it says. That's the Spirit of God's message. Conformity to Jesus or bust. And he just won't let you alone. You see, you used to think that you were just slightly irritable, but the more you dug, you realized that you were petty and vengeful. You used to think that you just had bad luck, so you kind of bemoaned it all the time and whined. But really, then you started to look at Scripture and you started to pray and interact with others and you realized, no, actually, I'm proud down to my core and I'm whining because life should have been different for me. I'm an exception. I can't believe this is where I am. You used to just think that you like to talk about girls or you just like to have a good time on the weekends the more you realize it, you thought to yourself, no, actually, wow, I am broken and hurt on the inside and I am coping with something that I can't even name. There is a depth of sin in me that I didn't even realize. You see, this is what happens when someone goes, or maybe if it's maybe less painful to think about knowledge. Have you ever started to learn about something? You thought you were becoming an expert, but you know the key to an expert in, someone, in something is when they say something like this, I don't know anything about the subject. You know, the person who watches one National Geographic thing about the stars thinks they're a science expert. You talk to people who study the stars in their first class in college, they'll talk endlessly about what they know. By the time they get to grad school for it, they'd say, let me tell you what we know about the stars. Almost nothing. Almost It's unbelievable. Like, we, we know, like, like, the tiniest little bit. And I believe that the same principle applies to someone who has begun uncovering the reality of sin in their life and wants to turn it all over to Christ. They say, oh my goodness, I remember, yeah. No, 15 years ago, I saw enough of my sin to cry out to Jesus, but it wasn't the half of it. You have no idea how much I need him. You, you, just, you wouldn't even believe it. I thought I was over the thing, the next day I'm just out there again. In other words, you might say something like this, I find a law at work within me. It's waging war against what I want to do. And I think this is evidence that Paul is a Christian. Because when I've tried to get down to the depth of myself, or I've tried to learn something that I thought I knew something about, it is often the case with me that I find myself more empty than when I began. The final evidence that this is the present Paul is that he lands somewhere. He doesn't just float out there. You see, that's one of the evidences of hopelessness is that it lands on nothing. There's a certain kind of doubting in the world that's kind of hip and in vogue, and the whole point of that doubting seems to just float endlessly. But Paul says, no, 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 there's a wrestling and a struggle and a doubt that lands somewhere. 
Chesterton once said, the whole point of opening one's mouth is to eventually close it on something, to eat, to feast. And the end of Romans 7, what kind of person other than a Christian would say something like this? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, because of the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who calls Jesus Christ their Lord, rejoices in the fact there's a deliverance, he says, I've found a rock, I've found a place to stand. It's not all battle here, it's not all emo here. There is hope for deliverance. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes asking the question, I'm a little surprised, why do people find it so hard to believe that Paul's a Christian wrestling with sin in this way? And I think to myself, have they never felt this? Have they never been at the place where they so longed to be different? And no matter what they tried in their own power, they just couldn't get there. They just couldn't transform the way they thought. And then I think to myself, you know what I bet it is in some ways? Is this is uncomfortable. This is gut level. This is kind of gross. This is the Bible's version of how the sausage gets made. You heard that phrase? You don't want to know how the sausage is made. You've heard this before? One of my favorite things about my in-laws, we went over Christmas, I have in-laws who are Cajun, all of them. All Cajuns. Well, there's a couple who have married in, but most of them are Cajuns. And other than the fact that they're loving and great and I am connected to them and family and all, you know, their general dignity as a human being, my favorite thing about my Cajun in-laws is food. 1,000% food. They are insane about food in a good way. They're, they're mad in a good way about food. Especially my brother-in-law. He can't do anything normal. If you're supposed to have a basic recipe for something and you generally know what it's going to taste like, by the time he's done with it, it'll taste like something extravagantly better. He just finds sticks of butter in his pocket and throws it everywhere and insane spice racks coming out of everywhere. So we were there over... New Year's, and he says, you know what? I think it'd be great. I want to teach you guys how to make sausage. I thought, unbelievable. Well, I did believe him because it turns out that he and a buddy as a kind of side hobby a number of years ago had a sausage-making business. They called it Florida Lynx, which is kind of a play on words. You know, the Florida Lee is like the, the little symbol. So Florida Lynx, do you get it? Because sausage comes in. You got it. So we're there over the break, and my brother-in-law pulls out of somewhere, I mean, who knows where he's got this stuff, all of this industrial-sized sausage-making equipment. And let me tell you something. I heard the phrase, you don't want to know how the sausage gets made a million times, but let me tell you why that's a, that's a phrase. It's disgusting. Like, unbelievably gross. He just pulls out of his freezer this mass of pork, and then there's a machine with blades on it that just run through, and you just throw it in there, and this thing just chops up, and it starts to ooze out the end like toothpaste. I mean, isn't this even say it? Sorry, the frog came up. He wants out. So, and then sometimes it gets stuck in there. You got to, like, just jam it through to get it, and now you have this big bowl of just sliced up, really easy to work with sausage stuff, pork. And then he brings us into the kitchen and he has this just massive outlay of different spices and cheeses and onions 
and different, all, all kinds of vegetables. And he just says, all right, you got to make up your own recipe. Get yourself a bowl and you just put your hand into the, the mix of stuff and then you mix whatever you want in it. And everybody's getting creative and they're putting cinnamon in there and seven Cajun spices from like an alligator tooth that we don't even know what it is or something. And you're putting all this in there and cheeses. And then you got to make your own little sausage patty. But we weren't done yet. The best of the recipes, he has another big machine. And he sends his wife and, and our wives out on a journey to go find pig intestine, like actual intestines for the casing of sausage. And so, our boys, he had made a really good recipe. Micah made an awesome recipe. You have to take a big bowl of it. And you walk over to a different machine, and you got to like thread this intestine onto the end of it. And then you, I promise I'm almost done. I'm almost, I'm almost done. And then you just take the top of it, all of it mixed together with the cheeses and the spices and the whole thing. You put it in the top, and then slowly by cranking this machine, it just starts to fill this. You got to go along with your hands and fill this sausage. Anyway, eventually there's sausage. And it's really amazing. And I thought to myself, here's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I will compartmentalize this experience and never think of it so that I can continue to enjoy sausage. You see, I think it must be. Why else would someone push back against? And by someone, I mean very bright, wonderful Bible teachers. I think they push back against the end of Romans 7 because it feels like the making sausage version of sanctification. It just doesn't sound... It just doesn't seem as beautiful. You just want him to skip over the hard parts. But Paul's not willing to let us do that because I think what he would say is something like this. Do you know how hard it is to be transformed to the image of Jesus? Do you know how much it takes God's Spirit to continually be patient with us? I'm going to show you a section of the Bible that I th- it's the same Paul. I think it's the same message, just more beautiful. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, same concept. But here's how it reads in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Doesn't that just sound really lovely, like something you'd sign up for? But here's my suspicion. My suspicion is is that if you dig down between the words and you think about what is this going to look like in real life, how is a person transformed from one degree of glory to another? You know what I think it is? I think it's a lot like the end of Romans 7. You see, everybody wants the after picture. Let me tell you something. I want the after the person worked out for months picture. But how do you get to that picture? Well, you get to that picture by sweating a lot, by pulling some muscles, by disciplining yourself to do what you don't want to do. And then, even if you tell yourself sometimes, no, here's the thing, I'm going to the gym. That's what I do. I'm a gym person. You know what you do the next morning? You convince yourself to not go to the gym. Then you might say to your friend, here's the, here's the problem. I do what I hate. I do what I don't want to do. Because real transformation over the course of time is a process. And it means that if you want the six-pack, the first day that you do sit-ups, you're not going to be able to barely get out of bed the next morning. You're going to have aches and pains. And I believe that we need to embrace the reality that God will not leave us alone in our sin. He will not leave us like he finds us or like we're found by him in Christ. 
He will slowly over the course of time, in a process of sanctification, make us holy. I think there's some principles of why I believe this is an encouraging passage that we should take out of it. Or that we should leave saying not, oh boy, this is terrible, look how sad Paul is. But there are things to take out of it that should be an encouragement to us. And that idea of sanctification as a process is encouragement number one. And if you write down a little note or you think to yourself, what do I learn from Romans 7? I want you to remember the word process and think about sanctification. Justification is a moment in time kind of thing. There is a grace of God that declares you righteous and seals you forever. The moment you confess your sins to Christ, you are forgiven. What's the thing we read from Isaiah? I've redeemed you. He says, come to me. Your sins are like a cloud. I wipe them away, blue skies. That's justification. But the Bible speaks of sanctification as a kind of grace that works as a process. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that we're going to need grace not only at the time we confess our sins, but grace for the rest of our lives. Remembering that sanctification is a process means that you can be patient. Now, this is going to sound a little therapeutic and a little self-helpy. Bear with me. It means that you can be patient with yourself. It means that when God declares that he gave you grace not only to forgive your sins in Christ, but then to make you like Jesus, he knew that it would take a patient process. Many of us attempt to and want to speed up the process of sanctification more or faster along. We're not content with God's process. Don't call God a liar by being so down on yourself as though you were capable of perfection. As though you, based on your own power, now that I'm in Christ, I can be perfect and I should be and I'm going to hold myself to that standard. Now, you should long for perfection. That's where we're getting. But I think the reality for every Christian is you're going to struggle with sin probably like, just about like Paul did. It's really arrogant sometimes. That's why I'm so encouraged that it's the Apostle Paul of all people that's writing this. How are you doing in your Christian life? Are you getting further along than Paul who says, oh man, woe is me. This is a body of death I'm living in. I do what I don't want to do. You see, I've felt sin like that dwelling in me. And I'm so grateful to say, yeah, I want to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. I'm going to confess these things. But sanctification will be a process. Second, this means sanctification is going to be a process. This is kind of under sanctification it means that we need to be patient with one another. You know who else is going to need grace every day of their life? They needed grace when they confessed Jesus, and you know when they're going to need grace? Every day. We need to have a culture that recognizes the currency that we exchange between one another is patient, gracious walking. I think it was Ecuador that they just announced that like Bitcoin is their official currency. They just changed their currency. Crypto now, they said. Well, the church needs to declare grace as the currency of our exchange. And when we insist on perfection, when we are shocked that someone would bring a struggle with sin to us, we kill the very community that God has given us. Our currency, the thing that gets exchanged here between us, because sanctification is a process, is grace. We need to be willing to listen, to understand to enter into and to say to someone, tell me the struggle that you're in, let's bring this sin somewhere. That needs to be a common thing for us. 
You don't want to be the kind of person who says, I'm a Christian friend, come talk to me. And then the whole time that someone describes their actual sin, you're just horrified. You're like moving backward like this. Oh my goodness, no, I thought you'd confess the sins like, like I wanted you to confess. You were a little impatient at the store. You know what I mean? And then be patient enough with people to say something like this. I'm going to keep walking with you because the Spirit of God won't give up on you. So don't say to someone, well, this is a real problem. Here's the thing. Pray these prayers and then just come back perfect by next Tuesday and I'm happy. Have grace for the people in your life. It's our currency. Second thing that should be an encouragement about Romans chapter 7. Battle, the battle, is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. We made this point with Paul. So let me ask you, are you fighting? Are you battling? Did you read Romans 7 and did something pop to your mind and say like, oh yeah, I know the thing that I do that I hate. I do the thing that I hate. Then I want to encourage you. If there is evidence of the battle, the Spirit of God moving you, he's going to transform you. You're going to have arms in different places. New creature, that's what he's after. New creature. This is going to cause some scars, some changes. There's going to be evidence of a battle. So, look for the evidence of the battle against sin in your life and then thank God that he's empowering you to be in the fight. This is not a surprise to him. It's not a reason to doubt. It's not a reason to say, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm probably not a Christian because my guess is no one else is battling when really what we should say is, you know what the cry of Christians is? We battle. We fight sin. That's just the rest of our life. We see sin in a way that we never saw it before and we're fighting. Finally, there's encouragement here because Paul doesn't just leave it at emo self. Remember I said earlier, he opens his mouth, but he closes it on something. You see, what Christians do is they declare the hope that they have eventually in Christ. This is not a hopeless battle. We acknowledge that we live between two worlds. Jesus has come. He has died for our sins. We are forgiven, but sin still dwells in us at some level. We are longing for the day when Jesus' kingdom, which actually was inaugurated when he came, will be here in fullness. We live now in an age where not everything is subject to Christ, though there is a coming age when everything will be subject to Christ. So what we must tell ourselves and tell others who are struggling with sin is something like this. I want you to know, don't give up. Because God's Spirit's not going to give up on you, and one day it's all going to be wiped away. Every tear, gone. Every bit of struggle, out. Every bit of eminency, every bit of petty back and forth, all the awkwardness you feel, the ways we fail one another, all these things wiped away when God's kingdom comes fully when Christ returns. That's what it means to be a Christian as we wrestle with sin. We don't stop the sin conversation short of the hope that we have in Christ. Accountability is not, let's just all wallow in sin for a while and then look at each other and say like, all right, let's go to the movies. Find your way, fight your way, grovel your way to worship. That's how the Psalms end all the time. You read the Psalms? The psalmist is always saying stuff like this, I'm a worm, I don't deserve water. He says it he says like that all the time, but you know where he ends it? He ends it by saying, but God is a deliverer, I'm looking to him, he's a firm foundation, and Paul's doing the same. So I say to you this morning, your battle with sin will be won. Your ongoing struggle, your exhaustion, you can find rest in Christ. We have a rock to stand on and it is a surety, a certainty, a 1,000%. Do you know that the sun itself will burn out and crash 
before you would ever be let go in your battle for sin by Jesus who saved you. You are more stable in him than any element of the earth. That's what Paul ends on. Oh, I got this body of death, you two. All right, let's just go to the rock. Let's go to the deliverer. Let's go find a place of hope. And ultimately, that, that's a big difference in the way people fight against sin. So I keep using the word sin. Here's the tricky thing about sin. It's got a million faces. I don't know what it looks like for you. My guess is the Spirit of God has moved you in a certain way. When I'm saying this word, you're thinking of moments. And so what I want to do is I want to trust the miracle of God's Spirit right now to apply to your individual situation. And I want to invite us collectively to take all of that and bring it to Christ. So let's pray.